How many of you uh, have been up to Lakeend Camp in the last like three or four or five years? If you haven't been there for a while, it's a pretty amazing place. Beautiful, beautiful camp. It's kind of all you would ever really dream about in a camp. You pines and birches and waterfront and welcome center and dining hall and professionally trained leaders. It's an amazing place. Now that's not the kind of camp I went to when I was a boy. <laughs> I went to this camp. It was called the Christian Union Camp. One year they got fancy and decided to call it Chautauqua, but it never took. Uh, so you know, if you could find a Chautauqua Camp t-shirt, it would be a relic. It was just the Christian Union Camp. It, was, uh, it didn't have a waterfront. It didn't have water at all. It didn't have a pool. It, it didn't have any full-time paid professional staff. There was Mr. Long, he was a part-time caretaker that lived on the property, and a wonderful man. The counselors were people that would come with the churches that came. The, 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 the speakers, well, they were, they were local pastors, and they had some of the following things. At the Christian Union camp, they had tetherball, and they had, I would always come home from camp with my hand all swelled up from losing at tetherball, um, to girls, and small people and they had shuffleboard which you really do want on your camp brochure don't you hey guys we have shuffleboard and they had ping pong in the shelter house uh they had government they had a lot of government surplus food that they served plus other stuff and uh they had softball that's how i spent my afternoon uh, at camp playing softball. They had girls. They had girls and boys. That was a big deal. Um, word on the street is that's still a big deal, but um, that's the way it was at the Christian Union camp. Um, crazy thing about that is it was 11 bucks a week the first week I went. When I was eight years old, it was $11. My parents scraped the money together so that we could all go. And then by the time I graduated from high school, it was $25 a week. So they had gotten really high and mighty at the Christian Union camp. But in the spring of the year, about the time the snow would melt, and about the time you got sick of being in school, we would come home from school, my sister Melanie and I. And my mom would say, Hey, the camp brochure came today. And then my sister and I would race for the camp brochure to see who could get it first. It always said the exact same thing. It wasn't like camp brochures now, you know, with color pictures of kids having riotously good fun. It was just a mimeographed piece of paper, 8.5 by 11, on both sides, tri-folded, and it always said the exact same thing every year, except the dates were changed. If you were young, you were in the pals and chums camp. There was one week of camp for you. If you were the junior high, you were in a, uh, a camp they imaginatively named junior high camp. <laughs> and then if you were in the senior high, well, you were in the senior high camp. And my sister and I would take that brochure and we would go in one of our bedrooms and we would sit on the bed and we would talk into the night about going to camp. We're going to go to camp. I wonder if our friends are going to be there. My parents would give me a, a little, they'd give me some money for the canteen. 
That was the place where you bought Mountain Dew at night in a paper cup and so forth. $2.50 they would give me. Um, you would take it to the bank. I don't really know why they had a bank for people that would bring $2.50, but they did. And you would give your money to the bank. And then they would give you a little green punch card. And then every time you get a cup of Mountain Dew after chapel at night, they would punch a card. And I made my $2.50 last to the end of the week. But when the brochure came in the spring, my sister and I would sit on her bed late into the night and we would talk about camp. Guys who spoke at camp were really not like the guys you hear at camp, a Ken Rudolph. They're just old southern type kind of holiness preachers there. There was a little place on the camp called the Tabernacle. It was, um, they called it the Tabernacle. It was a cement block building with a concrete floor. They didn't have any professional musicians. They didn't have any bands or drums or guitars. They just had some maybe lady that was a missionary that would go from school to school. And she had the child evangelism books that she would hold up for the young kids. And we would sing those songs. But something happened in those services. <laughs> Till the day I die, it will always touch my heart when I hear somebody call an evening service the Vesper service. Because every year that's what they would say. It's time for evening Vespers. The kids would all get their shower after dinner. I mean, we would clean up like we were going to a concert in Carnegie Hall. All the young guys had all gotten their dads aftershave, slathered themselves in aftershave, combed their hair, wore their best stuff. My parents would take me out before camp, and they had very little, but they would always have enough to get me a little something new, a new pair of shoes or some slacks to wear. And we would come to chapel. We would come to the tabernacle for the evening service. And you'd kind of want to act like you weren't paying attention, but the girls would come in all of their glory too. And they smelled so wonderful, and they looked so beautiful. You'd try to pretend you weren't looking at him, but you were. Your hands would tremble thinking who you're going to sit next to. And so you had all kinds of distractions. But something happened. Deep in my soul, in my heart, in the night, when those men would get up and they would preach, just something very, very significant, very deep. God was touching a place very deep inside of me. In those services in the nighttime, because... You see, with, even if you don't go to a big fancy camp, God has put eternity in your hearts. And only God can satisfy that longing that you have for things eternal. Matthew understood that. He knew that there was no way to satisfy the deepest hungers and longings of the human heart outside of God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a miracle that really only God fully understands... God the Holy Spirit took Matthew and working together with Matthew inspired a story of the life of Christ that touches the deepest places in us. And the story that we're going to look at today is in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. If you don't have one, you should get what they call a harmony of the Gospels. It's a beautiful way of saying 
there are the four Gospels, and each of them tell the stories of Christ, and, and there's a lot of common material, and there's some unique material in some of them, but if you have this book called The Harmony of the Gospels, it helps harmonize the Gospel accounts, and you see all that's said about a specific story. If you work to harmonize the Gospel accounts, and you put all the little details together, it can be such a fascinating thing to put together the stories of the Bible. That's part of my job through the week. Is this the wonderful, the glorious experience it is just to read the Word of God and compare it and study and harmonize the accounts and, and understand all that happened. Now you understand this is after Matthew's presented Christ as the, as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, as the Messiah, and then Matthew has displayed what Jesus said on the Mount, on the Sermon on the Mount, And then Matthew's gathered together a few stories about the healing of the leper and the healing of the centurion servant. And now we get into a very interesting little tiny cameo appearance of a woman here and of of a town. And it really is much richer than you think when you first read it. Verse 14. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother. Translate, mother-in-law. Lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand. And the fever left her. And she arose and served them. When evening had come, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our weaknesses. This occurred in the autumn of the year. It was on the margin of the Sea of Galilee, a lake about about 13 miles long, about 8 miles wide. Lake Erie is 100 times Lake Erie is 100 times larger than the Sea of Galilee. The great lakes are called lakes. But they really are inland seas. This week I watched a fascinating lecture by a very gifted uh, writer named Jerry, Jerry Dennis. Pray for his salvation when you think about it. He needs the Lord. But, but he wrote a book called The Living Great Lakes. And I watched this lecture that he gave over in Ann Arbor. Just a fascinating lecture. In which he talked about the wonder of the Great Lakes. And one of the things he talked about is the lore of the Great Lakes. What an amazing body of literature is the lore of the Great Lakes. But no, none of the Great Lakes ever saw the works that this little body of water, this little harp-shaped body of water with five different names saw. We visited Capernaum this spring, as you know. But this little village, this little town, at the time maybe 1,500 in population at the most, it was an autumn morning. It was a Sabbath autumn morning. And Jesus and his disciples, when they had finished in the synagogue, according to the other passages, when they finished in the synagogue, they went immediately to Peter's house. Well, if you had visited with us, you would see how that works because the synagogue faces down the lake. It's on the north and, and west corner of the lake, but there's a, there's a shelf where Capernaum is that actually faces straight down the lake to the south. And, and you can imagine walking out of the synagogue and looking down the lake. But between the synagogue and the lake would be Peter's house. 
which they've discovered. It's actually grotesquely incongruous that they have built over the top of this ruins a spaceship-like church. It looks like a spaceship. And I would imagine that the, that the committee meeting where the Franciscans or whoever it was that built that church, I would like to have been in that meeting to share a bit of advice. Even, even I, I mean, in this place of great antiquity, you have the synagogue where Jesus taught in a spaceship. Jesus will probably fix that someday. But it was wonderful to be there. And in this spaceship-like church, which really was very beautifully built, you, you could look down through the floor. They had a thick glass floor. You could look down into the place where, when they've reconciled all kinds of historic documents and archaeological finds, they believe, they have discovered with certainty, this was the house of Simon Peter that's being talked about in our story today. For many, many years, as a matter of fact, on my Kindle this week, I spent $5 and I bought the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, which is a ponderous five, four-volume set, but it was an old version. That's how you get it for $5 on Kindle. And I read about Capernaum. And one of the things that they said was they have not discovered the site of ancient Capernaum. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, how modern scholarship is always trying to course-correct to catch up with the Bible. You have in the Bible a description of this little village. And this autumn Sabbath morning, when they walked out of the synagogue and they went to Peter's house. Now, what would you normally do on a morning like this? And this is not just any morning. I mean, the fame of Jesus had been spreading around. His healings of multitudes. We're talking thousands of people and healing every kind of disease. And then this authoritative teaching that everyone agreed was, was like nobody else ever taught. And now he's coming to your village and he's speaking in your synagogue. This was a big Sabbath day. And then what would you do after, after synagogue? Wouldn't you have a Sabbath meal and you would go to this prosperous fisherman's house, Peter, and they would go there, but there would be no meal prepared for them because Peter's mother-in-law was deathly ill with a fever. And she was lying down and, and, and she was suffering. And in, the, in this little sparse way, this, little, this, uh, this very the economy of words that Matthew uses to stay on the main point, he just says, now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. He just walked over and he touched her hand, took her by the hand. And one of the other counts, he spoke and the fever left her. She did not recuperate. She didn't start to feel a little bit better. You heard about the story, did you, about when kids home, came from school, mom was sick. And I was like, mom, what are we going to have for supper? And mom says, I'm sorry, but I just can't get down there and finish you supper. I'm sick. So he went and got his brothers and they went up and said, mom, can we carry you down to the stove? <laughs> Every woman here understands that. Jesus, he might have been hungry here. And Jesus... With a word and with a touch, he completely heals this woman. 
And then she, the Bible says, for the first time in the New Testament, uses the deacon word, the deaconate word. She ministers to him. Yeah, she did. Jesus healed her, and she expressed her reverence, her devotion, her wonder, her love, her thanksgiving by, I can I read into the text, making him her best <laughs> recipes. I don't know. But, the, but Matthew goes out of his way to express, though in the other stories it's clear that she fed everybody in the household. And Andrew lived there, Peter's brother, and obviously Peter and his wife and others so forth. She had a large household. She fixed something for all of them. But Matthew specifically goes out of his way to say she ministered to him, to Jesus. Ah, when a person's heart and when their life is touched by Jesus' healing hand and his love, then they look around to find something they can do for him. And they minister to him. It was an autumn Sabbath overlooking this beautiful lake. And the air must have been electric that day. What a fascinating time. Where did all these sick people come from that Jesus healed? Uh, Ray Vanderland says something about this area. That it would have been kind of a magnet for sick people because of the, because of the springs that would have been around the area there. He says it like this. There are several hot mineral springs surrounding the lake. The largest of these is in the capital city of Tiberias, where Herod Antipas included it in his hot baths. Ten of Jesus' 33 recorded miracles, including a majority of his healing miracles, happened near the lake. In other words, people would come to, to, for the hot baths and the 100 minerals that would be in them to get whatever kind of relief they could, and they would not be healed, but perhaps relieved. And then they, all these sick people that would be gathered around would hear there was somebody that's actually taking away people's sickness and healing them. And in a miracle no one, like, like never before happened, nor would ever happen again, he healed thousands of people completely and totally and delivered some from d- being demonized. Verse 17 then says that this was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that we've numbered Isaiah 53. Isaiah the prophet here like scales a mountain of Bible prophecy to say things he can't possibly even completely fathom himself when he says them because they go soaring across the centuries to Calvary. And he describes something about Jesus, his sympathy Do you realize that we always say Jesus suffered on the cross for sin? Do you realize, though, that this verse and other teachings show us that the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus suffered sympathetically throughout all of his life because of sin? Great sympathy and great suffering. Every time Jesus saw someone languishing under demonic influence or disease, he suffered he bore their infirmities. I appreciate John MacArthur. He, he has a way of expressing things. He said about this passage, verse 17, Christ bore both the guilt and the curse of sin, but physical healing and ultimate victory over death are guaranteed, like in the future, by Christ's atoning, atoning work. But these will not all be fully realized until the very end. Do you get this? My first hospital call... As a 17-year-old pastor, maybe you would say wannabe pastor, 
I, I, I read a passage, a prophetic passage from the Psalms and, and to, to the woman lying there in cold water in the hospital. Ironically, the same hospital where a few years later our first child would be born. I read this, Coldwater, Ohio, I, I read this to her, this promise, this prophetic psalm of like, no, no harm will ever come to you. It's written about Jesus. The one they beat and scourged and mocked and tortured and crucified. The prophecy saying no ultimate harm can ever come to one who has eternal life. Were you with us in the funeral when we heard the beautiful song to be in Christ and die is not to really die, but to live? 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. In other words, whatever the problem is, sin is what's behind it. Whatever sin has caused death and burial and resurrection and life of Jesus solves ultimately one day. He forgives all of our iniquities. He heals all of our diseases, Psalm 103, verse 3. And Revelation 21, speaking of the future, verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There will be no more pain. The former things have passed away. Jesus bears that on his shoulders and he'll take away the effects of sin on all the earth. Remember this, if you have a problem, it's because of sin. If you have a problem, it's because of sin. Number one, it's because you're not justified, perhaps. You're not saved. Or, if you're saved and you still have a problem, it's because of sin, it's because you're not sanctified yet. Or not fully sanctified yet, if you will. You're progressively sanctified yet. In other words, the scriptures teach that, the, 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 as you've heard many times, that the answer for the penalty of sin is justification. Being made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. And the answer for that power of sin that plagues us throughout our life is the progressive, progressive sanctification. And the ultimate answer to sin is what? Not justification, not sanctification, but the ultimate answer to sin is, you got it, glorification. When we're swept into the presence of the Lord in our eternal state, and we no longer have to deal with the, even the presence of sin, who bears that on his shoulders? Jesus Christ, this, this teacher, this enigmatic, mysterious person making his way through the village of Capernaum that day. Who touches people and heals them and speaks a word and delivers people from demons and silences demons and has all... And we still sing about him every Sunday. We're never going to come up with a song that's not about Jesus. They're all about Jesus. And all of our stories, they're about Jesus. And all of our scriptures, they're about Jesus. And it's never that never seems wrong or inappropriate, does it? It would seem wrong or inappropriate about anyone else but not him. Alfred Edersheim, obviously a Jewish man who was converted... Uh, under the ministry of Robert Mermachane, wrote this most gorgeous, I've talked about it before, this gorgeous biography of Jesus called The Life and Times of Jesus Messiah. And I love to read that book because he it was a Jewish man who had the understanding of the Jewishness of the Bible, and he, and he lived in that area, so he had a firm grasp of the geography, and he was a poet at heart, so he described things so beautifully. You should read his passage on this. I'll give you just a little taste of it, 
but not much because my wife told me don't read long quotes in the pulpit. So obeying my wife in her absence today, I'll read just a short quote. One by one, the stars shone out over the tranquil lake on that autumn evening. This festive city lighting up earth's darkness, heaven's soft brilliancy, as if they stood there as witnesses, the stars witnessing that God had fulfilled His promise to Abraham. There must have been many homes that had sorrow and sickness and oppression and poverty that were rejoicing at the promise of brighter days ahead since the sun had risen upon them with healing in its wings. It's good stuff, isn't it? Did you ever, did you ever hear that story about the little girl who was going up to bed at night and she got halfway up the stairs and she just turned back and she said to her family, hey, I'm going up to pray now. Does anybody need anything? Okay, here, here's what happened now. You've got Jesus going to Peter's house. They, they, he heals Hit Peter's mother-in-law, which is handy because then she fixes them dinner. And they have a Sabbath dinner. A quiet, peaceful, beautiful Sabbath dinner. It's like the calm before the storm. Because it is the Sabbath, people aren't really bringing a lot of sick people yet. Not till nightfall. But then the scriptures say, when nightfall came... Now you have an autumn evening scene in the Bible on the margin of this lake in this little village where Jesus has come and people start coming. There's noise outside and there are multitudes of people, sick people from all over the world come to this area. There come the sick people now. And the word is out that he's healing people by speaking to them and touching to them. And in the evening there by the margin of the lake, Jesus walks out among the people and delivers people from demons. Some of the demons decide to talk to him. He silences them and rebukes them. And they're silent. And he delivers people from every kind of sickness and illness and disease and demonic oppression. Wow, how would you like to have been there? It's almost like Jesus is here. Does anybody need anything? Hey, Jesus is here. Does anybody need anything? You, you say, no, no, I'm okay. I got my prescription. I'm okay. Wait, wait. No, wait. I won't go shopping tomorrow. I'll feel better then. No, no, no. That's like a, it's going to maybe make you feel good for a while, but it's like one of those springs. It's not going to solve the problem. Now, is it? I still have ambition in my, in my career. I will achieve some things. Yes, you will, but you will never achieve anything that answers the nagging hunger of your soul. Only Jesus will do that. Only Jesus can do that. He's here. You need anything? You say, you don't understand how dark it is. You don't understand how filthy it is. You don't understand how ashamed. Don't you think there were some dark people with a dark past and shame that gathered in Capernaum that day when Jesus walked out among the people and delivered them? My friend, how much worse can it get than demonized? Let's not sanitize that. That would be ugly. There were two women... On the property yesterday, they were disabled, their car, bless their hearts. They, I w- drove up and I saw this car, it was kind of rough, and it was jacked up with the, tire, you know, the standard roadside tire jack, and a woman was under the car. And I'm not real mechanical, but that didn't look good to me. I, I said, oh, you've got to get out from underneath that car, we've got to get blocks in there. So what are you doing? Her, our whole exhaust system had fallen off the car, and this precious lady in the heat on our property, was under the car trying to get it wired back up. So I'm, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lame about that kind of stuff. I said, well, let me get you a hanger. So I'm praying, God. I was thinking to myself, 
there's got to be somebody who knows what they're doing that could help me here. <laughs> so I'm telling the Lord, you know. And so I go in, I get a hanger, I come back out, she's waiting. I give her the hanger. And then I thought, wait a minute, in our garage we probably have one of those jacks. I don't know the name of them, but they're like better. So I went and got the better kind of jack. And uh, I was bringing it back and Mike Brown saw me. He, like an angel, my friend. I'm not kidding. He's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, is a lady having trouble? I don't know what to do. He just followed me over there. So I put the jack in her. They go, how does this work? You know, you don't want it to fall down because it would be really messy, right? You know, pastor kills, yeah. And so I'm like, let's make sure we get this right, right? Yeah, Mike, so you got it right. And then he, he just rolls underneath the car and he wired up her muffler. And I watched it and we let it down and she was like, I go, um, would you like something cold to drink? Yeah, it was horrible. Someone stole B. Moore's waters, which I have to pay her for later. They were nice, like propel waters. I, I said, Lord, you know, you know, your servant hath need of them. I'm going to give her money later for this. I'm, I'm going public with this thing. So I took her, I took B's water out of the fridge. <laughs> or maybe it was yours, Sandy. Was it your stuff? Yeah. That took, the, the propel water was at yours. Let's just be, let's, it was B's. Okay, so we know who, who I sinned against. And so I thought, I know B what, we, what she would want me to do with this water. So I took it out to them, and, and they're standing there like, and so we prayed, didn't we? Was, broke my heart. When I came walking in, I thought, that's just like what this whole area is like. There are people everywhere who think they need more money. They think they need a nicer car. They think they need a better job. They think they need healing. They need Jesus Christ. That's what they need. And we know Him. We have Him. And the best thing that we can do for them is show them what He has done in our lives. It's like the little girl going up the stairs saying, I'm going up to pray. Does anybody need anything? Jesus is in the house today. Is there anybody here that needs anything? Then you ask Him. What is it that's troubling you? What is it that you've tried? Didn't work, did it? Jesus is here. His power is unique. His authority is absolute. His reign is eternal. His sympathy is unparalleled. His heart is love. He alone is God. He's here right now. Don't miss Him. What do you need?